So the Lord is uh, continuing through the prophet Isaiah to uh, encourage and rebuke uh, different nations, uh, depending on circumstances. Most of it is pertaining to the nation of Israel and the nation's interaction with them. So at this point, um, he shifts focus over to Babylon. In Isaiah chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, it says, A burden against the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it, came, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunder or the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam, besiege O Media, all its signs I have made to cease. So this statement of <coughs> a burden against the wilderness of the sea. Babylon is called uh, the wilderness of the sea because uh, this entire area of Babylon was divided uh, with lakes and marshes. So in this desert, it's uh, you know a very unique place because of the rivers, the Tigris being there. Um, it has uh, you know this um, sort of um, um, persona, we might say, of being a sea in the middle of a desert. There's all this water that's there. It's commonly uh, referred to, especially at this time, and referred to as, you know, the wilderness of the sea. Uh, you know, go up, O Elam, as he makes this statement, besiege, O Media. Elam and Media are uh, the ancient names for the people of Persia, modern-day Iran is what you're talking about. The Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. And Isaiah here prophetically sees their armies marching on Babylon. You know, the, the fact that Isaiah sees this is most remarkable because at this point, these nations are insignificant. You know, and, and that's something that <clears throat> the critics over and over again wrestle with especially with isaiah because his vision is so long term he sees so far out that and and with such brilliant accuracy that you know the critics look at these statements and they're like that has to have been written after these events took place there's no way anyone saw these things with such clarity beforehand Unfortunately for the critics, you know, fortunately for us, uh, there are many uh, supporting confirmations of individuals at the time who were seeing these things fulfilled and writing about them. You know, secular uh, historians uh, that, uh, you know, were working under Cyrus that were recording the accuracy, you know, his being named by the Lord 150 years before he was born, you know, 200 years plus before he conquers. Uh, he's named as the servant of the Lord. You know, their historians were blown away by it as it's unfolding and happening. And, you know, the Jewish religious leaders are bringing them these writings and saying, look right here, your master's name recorded uh, for we've been waiting for 150, 200 years uh, for this to occur. You know, that that evidence was as startling uh, to the individuals at the time. It's you know it's just uh, a rebellion against the Lord and His Word that doesn't accept these things as being you know the prophecy given by the wisdom of God to His servant Isaiah. So in verse three, <coughs> it says. Therefore, my lo excuse me, my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. Now, it's interesting because 
you know, uh, you you see these people today that fake being prophets in the church. You know, they have these messages, you know, thus saith the Lord. I'm not talking about, you know, when the Lord lays something on your heart prophetically and you share with someone. I'm talking, I've received letters from people, um, you know, that, uh, I'm trying to remember when, uh, it was 2005, um, a woman that was attending this church at this time, her husband, um, was incarcerated for heroin dealing. And, uh, you know, he's now suddenly a prophet of God in jail. And uh, he's writing all these prophecies uh, and putting dates to them uh, about, you know, how um, the uh, all of the southern United States was going to be destroyed. And he put dates, you know, three years away. And, uh, you know, obviously it didn't come to pass. And, uh, you know, I assured her at the time, you know, your husband is crazy. This isn't, this isn't real at all. He's, you know, writing these things joyfully, gleefully, talking about how, you know, God is going to carry out his vengeance, all this junk. Here's a man who excels everyone in his um surroundings as far as his holiness his righteousness his dedication to the lord and when he has a this vision given to him by the lord he's overwhelmed with illness right you know the prophets who receive these type of cataclysmic messages i don't you know there are those that uh, imply that the the message of the lord is so powerful that it you know creates this illness this nauseating sense i I honestly take it any way you want to search your heart pray see what the holy spirit says to you i honestly think when these people are sick daniel overwhelmed with illness john writing in the book of revelation falling down as dead falling down in illness as he's receiving these prophecies i think what you're seeing there is those men are suddenly overwhelmed with the very heart of God. God doesn't perform these things with joy in his heart. He's not happy at the destruction of even his enemies. That's recorded throughout the scripture, that he takes no joy in the death of the wicked. When God is saying, this has to be done, this judgment is going to come, it it is overwhelming the heart of the men who are attuned to his heart. They're sick with the message that is coming. Perhaps you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've pleaded with someone in their sin. And and they, you know, take this attitude like, oh, here comes the holier-than-thou Christian telling me, you know, and you're sick to death because you know the outcome. You know what their behavior is going to result in in their life. And then when it transpires, they avoid you all the more, acting like you're, you, know, you must be at home, like celebrating their destruction. Nothing can be farther from the truth if we're truly walking with God, right? Our heart compelled to tell someone, hey, the direction you're going is going to damn, it's going to destroy you. Stop. And then it transpires. You don't, it's not like, there, I'm justified. Hooray. You know, good for me. I told them, and now that's the way it is. It's brokenhearted. That's what I see in the prophet. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but here he's overwhelmed, distressed. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed. He turned into uh, into fear for me. Prepare the table. Set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink. Arise, you princes. Anoint the shield. For thus has the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him declare what he sees. And of course, there are a couple of fulfillments, but <coughs> in particular, as Belshazzar is celebrating there and he's 
brought the princes into the palace and they've called actually for the golden utensils that were used in worship of the Lord, which had been captured by Babylon from Israel, from the temple. Bring those in. Let's drink wine from those and celebrate. And you're going to see some things here where the siege is outside the gate. They, they know the invading army is present. And they have, they have two frames of mind. One is, uh, we're impenetrable, therefore they can't touch us. Uh, the second one is, well, you know, maybe we are going to just die and get wiped out. So, you know, Israel does that and the Lord actually addresses it. You know, let us eat and drink and make merry for tomorrow we die. You know, this cavalier approach to the whole thing. Judgments at the door and they're celebrating. <coughs> the, the watchmen know what's going on and they're not even doing anything about it. I saw, verse 7, a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels, and he listened earnestly for, uh, with great care. Uh, this is a description of each of the armies that is going to come against them. So as <clears throat> we see the invasion, uh, both the Medes and the Persians uh, used horses, certainly, but uh, the Medes used donkeys uh, in going into battle. It was unique uh, as far as those um, that you know, waged war this way. That was uh, the bulk of their cavalry, whereas the Persians used camels, and that was the bulk of their cavalry. Uh, they learned to transport and fight from them, and especially in these desert settings, it was you know, very effective because uh, the camels moved uh, through the desert quite well. This is going to take place. These <coughs> things need to be watched for. Set the watchman. Look, take great care. Then in verse 8, then he cried, A lion, my lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the day. I have sat at my post every night. So this, this cry, a lion, was actually um, the sound for alarm. Um, when uh, shepherds uh, working in the open field um, had to raise alarm over anything, anything at all, if there were uh, invading marauders that were going to steal away the flock, if there was a wolf in their midst, the most dangerous of all their circumstance was a lion. Uh, because uh, generally speaking, unless there's something wrong uh, with a wolf as far as it being ill, <coughs> if the shepherds would throw rocks at it, scream at it, chase it, it would run away. Uh, lions, on the other hand, get in the flock, and they've made their mind up that they're coming away with sheep. And if they've got to take a piece of you with them in order to get that, they'll do that. And so the greatest alarm that could be raised was to yell lion. You know, it's, it's just the alarm. And uh, if you hear that, everyone was supposed to react accordingly. You know, those that need to get to safety, get to safety. Those that need to go and address the attack, the lion, go address that attack. So here... That is more what's being said. It doesn't have a particular application other than these people of the Middle East are very accustomed to when you have your herds and your flocks in the open field and somebody starts yelling, lion, there needs to be a very specific reaction on everyone's part. So here's the Lord saying, you know, you've chosen to party. You've chosen to celebrate and act as though this is not going to come upon you. You know, I call for a watchman, and the watchman sees, and what does he immediately react with? The, the greatest alarm that can be sound. There's a lion in the midst. Babylon has grown completely complacent. 
they, they, they've got this attitude like they are the world empire and no one is ever going to touch them. You know, I <coughs> don't mean to divert too strongly into a modern application, but I see great similarities in our own nation. You know, uh, people that have just, you know, grown accustomed to this idea of we have the greatest military in the world, and we do. We have the greatest technology, we have the greatest this, we have the greatest that. You know, it's long been said, one of the biggest reasons that a lot of the Middle Eastern culture, you know, countries that have been so problematic for us in regard to terrorism, the reason they're so effective is they don't use any of that technology. They purposely shun it. You know, even communication. is By mouth, in person, face to face. That's how communication is done. You know, email, text, that creates tremendous vulnerability. Cell phones, satellite phones, those things can all be hacked and listened to. So how do they communicate? In person. That's how their culture functions, and they understand its effectiveness against a technologically driven culture. We are incredibly vulnerable against that mindset. Those that still have interpersonal relationships, and that's how they wage war. Uh, we're incredibly vulnerable. You know, the 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 occasions. Um, <coughs> I have uh, connections. Uh, I, I'm trying to make it you know, realistic, not more important than it really is. I don't, I don't know uh, these men that are in and around Calvary Chapel well at all, but they work in, you know, the FBI and, the, you know, drug enforcement agencies. And they, I've had conversations with some of them uh, and been around conversations with some of them where, uh, you know, they talk about things that have been averted. And, and they, as believers, say more often than not, not, they recognize the hand of the Lord in preventing circumstance. It wasn't our prowess. It wasn't our skill and our capabilities. Somebody stumbled upon something and prevented great catastrophe. You know, I'm talking all since 9-11. We're very vulnerable. We're still under that umbrella protection of God. Still, to this day. And more and more, we're slapping his hand away, you know, removing that protection. So I, that was farther than I intended. But, you know, this, they're in this place of, like, nothing can touch us. And, you know, <coughs> in the midst of it, you know, go, set a watchman. Let him declare what he sees. And what does a watchman see? A lion. The alarm goes up immediately. You know, we're under the, the most serious threat right now is the sort of reaction. And then he cried, a lion, my lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime, and I have sat at my post every night. <clears throat> and look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. All the carved images of her gods, I, he has broken to the ground. Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared it to you. You know, this report that comes from the watchman, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. It's a dramatic scene that was fulfilled in the, you know, Medo-Persian Empire when it conquered Babylon. <clears throat> but it's also that prophetic application of far future of Revelation chapter 18, where you know, this uh, describes, uh, you know, the cry of an angel when God judges the world system, both commercial Babylon and spiritual Babylon. You know, the, the other application is, you know, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, fallen in the past here as the Medo-Persian Empire causes it to collapse and be conquered, and then also in the future when it has this re-emergence and this new realization ahead of us, when there's a one-world money system and a one-world religion. You know, <clears throat> remember Babylon. 
in regard to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Daniel is there. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has that dream and he's so disturbed about the statue that he's seen and Daniel interprets and he tells him you're going to be conquered. You know, you're, you're the golden head, but, you know, there is going to come this, you know, the, the arms, this twin empire, the Medo-Persian empire, your, your, your days are numbered. You know, you're not going to live. So, so how does he react? He builds a statue, all right, but it's a solid gold, top to bottom. And in other words, it's very defiant. It's saying, no, 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 there's not going to be any other portion. It's going to be me from top to bottom. Nothing's ever going to conquer me. And of course, he loses his mind and eats grass for you know a long period of time there, and eventually his you know mental state is restored to some degree, and <coughs> he is the only pagan to write entire chapter of the Bible. Keep that in mind, okay? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, used by the Lord, here, he fell. That empire's gone. But that mentality of one world system, one world rule, one world money, one world religion, that's still ahead of us. We're rapidly progressing towards it, you know, and, and in certain degrees, we're already there. Certainly in the money system, there's a couple changes that still need to take place. But, you know, there are many of you in this room who remember a time where if you wanted to travel, especially outside the country, you had to take traveler's checks with you. You know, you had to immediately go in uh, to some location and exchange your currency in order to, you weren't going to just walk in with American dollars and purchase in pounds in Great Britain. You know, I mean, you, you had to do the conversion. Today, plastic card. Everywhere you go. The conversion's automatic. You know, there is a one-world money system of numeric digital banking all over the world. You know, that will eventually be in the, in the hand or in the forehead. You know, that's what uh, Revelation tells us, that the, the, the beast, the... Antichrist will cause the people of the world to have this mark on their forehead or on their hand. <clears throat> we had just moved into town, opened a new bank account, and uh, I had to use my thumbprint to open the bank account electronically. And I'm goofy, so I said, what happens if you don't have thumbs? Because this is my hand. And you're saying I've got to, I have to use my hand in order to have this bank account. I said, what, what, right there, people that don't have thumbs, there are people that don't have hands. So what happens if I don't? She said, oh, we use this spot right on your forehead. Hello. <clears throat> I thought it was your thumbprint, and it wasn't. It's actually the vein insignia inside your thumb that it's reading, and it will read the vein signature in your forehead. So someone that doesn't have hands or thumbs or so we're already there. You know, it's just not been mandated that everybody do it. The University of Maine two years ago, uh, so many students were abusing the limitless food option. You just pay one price, right? And you get the the card. Well what was happening is Student number one pays for the card, goes in, swipes the card, eats all that he wants to, comes out, hands the card to student number two who walks in and swipes the card and eats all they want to because it's a limitless food source. So the University of Maine changed over to handprint identification. So all of their cafeteria is limitless food. You've got to have your hand present. It has to be alive also reads the blood flow inside your I thought it was the fingerprints and it's not it's actually looking at the vein signature inside the hand every time they would scan so you know we we're moving to these places and Babylon falls here and yet it its spirit its entity its mindset its ideology still exists and it will fall permanently in the future 
uh, you know, seeing both the world system of, as I said, the commercial Babylon and spiritual Babylon, you know, and uh, there in <coughs> Revelation 18, you know, he cried mighty with a loud voice saying, Babylon, the greatest fallen is fallen and has become a dwelling place for demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Uh, you know, the uh, repetition of the phrase, you know, is fallen is fallen connects the two passages you know it is it is fallen in the past and it is still fallen in the future when we get there so the same panic and terror the people of babylon felt when the great city was conquered by the medes and persians uh, will be seen again uh, when the lord strikes the world system uh, in the future in both spiritual Babylon and commercial Babylon, the world will be terrified and mourn uh, the same way that they did in the past for Babylon. Revelation chapter 18, verses 9 through 19. But God's people will rejoice over the fall of Babylon there in the same chapter 18, verse 20. You know, his people take joy in the permanency of that destruction. So, Back in Isaiah 21, looking at verse 11, the burden against Duma calls to me out of Seir, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? Watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. So Duma was another ancient name for the kingdom of Edom. And uh, in the mountainous region of Seir is where it was located. The Edomites descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob. Uh, they settled in the land southeast of Israel, uh, where the Israel and uh, Edom were often enemies. And, you know, especially during the period of time when Israel was trying to leave Egypt and enter the land of Canaan that the Lord had promised there was great fighting and all kinds of animosity and refusal of assistance and food and water that went on. So now the burden against uh, Duma comes here. This idea of the watchman, you know, the idea that the morning comes, you know, the night is sort of passing. It may be that idea that the, the darkness of the threats are going to finally be lifted. And so now in verse 13, you know, the burden against Arabia and the forest in Arabia, you will lodge, O traveling companions of the Dedanites. Uh, if you're reading and it says in your King James uh, version, you know, Dedum, uh, that's plural for Dedan. So in the New King James, it's rendered as Dedanites. Um, the forest of Arabia, it's commonly referred to that in Arabia. We would be there and, you know, look at, you know, four, five, six, seven foot tall, uh, scrub brush and think this is no forest. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a desert wilderness with, uh, you know, thick evergreen, uh, you know, growth that's you know shrub growth it's not not really a forest to them this is the description that you know this is the the forest in the wilderness of arabia i guess if you live in a desert that's how you might look at things you know what i'm saying you know i uh <coughs> james my son-in-law had a family come up and visit and they're all from southern california and, uh, you know, they've just seen, like, wide-open desert forever, their, most of their lives. And uh, they come up here into the woods, and they're convinced that Stephen King has planted serial killers behind every tree. You know what I'm saying? It's, just, it's like, it's a frightening place, this, this great forested wilderness. It's funny how when you're in certain settings, you think of things certain ways. You know, here, these Arabian people think of this scrub growth as this great forest. 
<laughs> we wouldn't like we're like we can't even build anything out of this stuff. There's no there's not even trees here. Why would we refer to this as a forest? Because it is you know sort of an evergreen growth there. So that's way too much explanation for that. If you uh, you know are trying to research that later, you're not going to find that Arabia has great forests. Is the point. So, oh, inhabitants of the land of Tima, bring <coughs> water to him who is thirsty uh, with their bread. They might, uh, they met him who fled for, they fled from the swords, from the drawn swords, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. So, you know. Almost always, war generates great numbers of refugees, people that flee from it. And honestly, you know, that's one of the wisest things uh, to do unless you're actively engaged in the war to try and stay in the region where war is occurring is just going to make you and everyone you love a victim of those circumstances it's it's a horrendous thing here <coughs> the arabians are providing food and bread for those who are fleeing so in this situation they're going to be affected by it but they also have this provision in their midst for thus says uh, the lord he has said, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of <coughs> Peter will fail. Within the year of a hired man. That's 365 days. Um, very specific right to the year. This is going to transpire. Um, there's The reason the Lord says it this way is because sometimes... Um, you know, it could be interpreted as meaning something other than a year. In this case, he puts that definition on the end of, no, this is going to be according to the year of a hired man. So this is going to transpire very quickly, and they're all going to see it happen. Both things stand out to those that witness this burden against Arabia. Uh, the fact that it was stated that it would occur with a year, and then it, the fact that it transpired with a year causes everyone to take note of, wow, that was, one, quick, and two, sure. If, if somebody, you know, was to say, I don't know what, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, they would repave the parking lot here within a year, I don't know, something weird. And within a year's time, it took place, you know, when there was no expectation of something happening and then it took place it causes everybody to pay attention of wow you know that that really was fulfilled in a very short period of time when there was you know no provision no insight no thought that these things would happen and then they come it says the remainder of the number of the archers the mighty men of the people of keter will be diminished for the lord god of israel has spoken it <clears throat> they were known for their archers, and it's going to come to a place where there's almost nothing left. You know, it's uh, their their great military prowess. So, this picture of refugees, uh, you know, from an attack on Arabia, they're traveling companions of the Dedanites and their thirst and their need for bread because they fled from a sword. You know, it's as it says from the bent bow. This distress of war. You know, within a year. You know. This is, as we said, the exact year uh, the hirelings uh, diligently observe and wait for the end of the year when they're going to receive their wages. So the idea that everyone should just poise and wait for this. Oh, and there's the payment. You know, payday came is the idea. So all of these things transpire that quickly. Chapter 22. Uh, looking at verse 1, the burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? Now, <clears throat> this is part of what I was talking about before, the accusation that's made against Babylon, and now 
against uh, Israel. This is specifically speaking of Jerusalem at this point and the burden against the Valley of Vision. The idea there, and there's some speculation about what valley they're talking about, but it seems to be that they're talking about um, the elevated position just outside the city that even to this day is called the Valley of Vision, where you have a clear line of sight to the city of Israel. So, um, you know, referred to as a valley, the reason that it can be seen clearly is because uh, people would get up on the wall. So they could see, you know, sort of the entire spread of the city. And here, you know, which is also you know, part of what the prophet is saying, uh, you know, you've gone up on the housetops from the wall. You can then see the housetops of the people inside the city. So the prophet is saying, you know, here you have this great distress that's come upon you and you guys have all gone up on your housetops. Look at verse 2. You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city, your slain men are not slain with a sword, nor dead in battle, excuse me, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. So this jumps back to the Assyrians besieging uh, Jerusalem. And again, here, they specifically are, are rebuked because they're partying, much like Babylon did, but more so with the attitude of, well, that's it. You know, the Assyrians are outside, and they, they don't let Babylon have that attitude, like, we can endure this. Uh, Israel had the attitude like, well, that's it. That's all she wrote. So we might as well, since we're going to die, we might as well party. We should just eat and drink because tomorrow we die. That that has become their attitude at this point. They've gone up on their housetops. They're all celebrating in this idea that they haven't died in battle. You know, there's an enemy at your gate. You could have gone out and fought. What you're going to die from is starvation. It, it isn't going to be because you had any nobility of character. More, you were selfish and you were cowardice. Death is going to come to you, so let's just party anyway. A really <coughs> tragic summary of God's people. The rulers have fled together and yet they're captured. And we see a couple instances of this during this siege where they tried to the, their leaders tried to disguise themselves as you know peasants and flee they send distraction party one direction and they go the other direction and they're captured anyway you know, the the idea that you know they're trying to get away you know you know what a shame when a nation's leaders come to the place where the people have fallen under a siege and distress and death, and they're just trying to save their own skin. You know, ra rather than being there to at least negotiate for the well-being of their people, even if they're going to fall into slavery, even if they're going to become the servants of another nation, even if they're going to cease to exist as a people, you know, as the leader of these people, how do I negotiate the best possible scenario for those countrymen, and they don't. They, they're trying to escape and save their own skin. They're captured by the arch archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore, I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly, and do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughters of my people. I, you know, Isaiah and the Lord are both saying, you know, you guys are all acting like this is it. Let's party. All I can do is weep. I'm brokenhearted. I can't join you in the celebration. I can't go up on the housetops and, you know, be part of a city of joyous people. 
I'm brokenhearted for this. And, and as the Lord said, as Isaiah understands, this siege is going to come to the place of cannibalism. It's going to get so severe, parents are going to be eating their children, their infant children. It's as sick a situation as it could possibly be. And they start out with that revelry. A sad condemnation of them. All Isaiah can say on behalf of the Lord and himself is, I'm not, that's not my attitude. I'm overwhelmed with what's going on. For it is a day of trouble, <clears throat> treading down in perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls, and of crying to the mountains. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. You know, because Elam, Babylon's neighbor uh, to the east, had strongly supported the Babylonians and the Chaldeans in the struggle against Assyria, the Elamites were probably allies with the Babylonians at this point. So in verse 7, it shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. The idea is, um, you know, those valleys that you think of as like lush and green and park-like, and, you know, you, you took the kids down there on the day off, and everybody, you're going to look out, and it's just going to be military. You know, you think of it like, you know, wh where is the place um, that you've been, and, and you see, you know, you go there, and there's just tanks. You know, I had a, I have a memory when I was just 12 years old. And um, if you're familiar with Bangor, Hammond Street comes all the way up over the hill and over I-95 right to the end of the airport at Bangor International Airport. And my grandmother, Gladys, was with us. She was in the front seat. And sunny summer day, everything's fine we're all just kind of enjoying one another's company we crest that hill and i've never heard her scream in my life before or since she's not with us anymore but um blood curdling scream we crest that hill you know i'm just young man in the back seat in my own little world in my own little mind and my elderly grandmother just lets out the most shrill screech and she's pinned in the seat pointing out the windshield and I look up and there is a World War II bomber sitting on the end of the runway and the whole tail fin is a giant swastika she grew up in her teen years going through World War II. And you would not believe the animosity that came seething and writhing out of her. Just about, what is that doing here? And she just, I mean, over an hour later, she's still pegged. She's losing her mind about that airplane sitting on that runway, running, preparing for takeoff. You know, we quickly come to the assessment of it must be some historic artifact. You know, I mean, it's it's got to be headed somewhere. And sure enough, it's headed to an air museum in Texas. And it's going to be there for literally so many years, and then it's going to be flown somewhere else. And it, it is... It is a completely original, totally intact World War II bomber used by the Germans during the Blitz. I mean, that thing has caused, she, she, that is not right. 
that thing should have been dismantled. That thing should have been destroyed. That thing, that should not exist. She's going up. The application. You know, a place where you don't expect to see the most heinous of enemies just suddenly there filling up your whole world. You know, every time I read this, I think of that moment with her. There was no consoling her. You could read the papers and explain what it was all about to her, and she and all it would do was rile her all up again. That, that was a symbol of evil. The, you know, they had conquered. The world had nearly fallen into the clutches of that madman, and everything associated with him should have been done away with. Imagine. You take the kids to the park, and there, not just some element of those that we know to be our enemy, but literally the entire military display of your enemy is there. In force, in power, guns loaded, ready to rock and roll. That would wreck your afternoon. And this is what's going on. All your choicest valleys, the places, the valley of vision, the place where you get a good view, where you can look long and far and see everything, you're going to look out and see nothing but the chariots, the tanks of your enemies. That's a horrible thought. Horrible thought to understand what the Lord is saying here in this moment. Verse 8, he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. That was their armory. Okay, The house of the forest was made out of these massive cedars. So the inside working was just huge timbers, and then it was all planked over with just clean, clear cedar boards. So much the forest that they walked in, and early on in its construction, named it the house of the forest. And that's where they kept their armory. So now they've come into this place, you know, the house of the forest. You're trusting in your armory. You're trusting in your military. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the walls <laughs> at this time. And actually to this day, um, there are sections of the wall around Jerusalem where you can see the ancient foundation work of houses that abutted the wall and they tore the wall down during, or the houses down uh, during this time in order to fortify the wall and elevate the wall because the enemies were arriving and places where the wall was in disrepair, they took the houses down. They literally show up and say, you got to find some place to live because by this afternoon we're going to level this place and it's all going to be put in the wall right there. You're preparing yourself. This you know, pool that they speak of here, the waters of the lower pool, they did this in two locations where there was a stream and a spring that both came into the pool of Siloam and they <coughs> capped them over and covered them and then they, they chiseled through 1,700 feet of solid rock to bring the water inside the city. They understood we're going to be under siege and, and so they make these preparations. They take these resources and they make these preparations for when they're going to be under siege. So you've fortified the wall, you've capped off the spring, you also made a reservoir between the two walls of the water of the old pool, so these two water sources leading in. You did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. Think about that. You, you, you went ahead and you took the resources God gave you and you made the best of them but you never even considered god in the process right i mean you know to wherever it applies to you think about it you know 
the great resources you may have and the way it takes care of you and your family. Uh, did you orchestrate your circumstances to line your life up in such a way that those things are available to you? No, you didn't. Because if you thought for one split second you did, you didn't. God made those provisions for us. Even if we've taken the resources God has given and done the best we could with them, like they've done here, wonderful, praise God, but literally praise God. He's the one, right? You you could literally, I said this to the guys I was talking to last night, you literally could have been born in India. Into, into the lower class of the Dalits. You know, you could be of the spiritual class or the business class or the Dalits, who, according to the spiritual class and the business class, the educated class, they're not even human beings. You know, K.P. Yohannan gives account of a young man who was verified in a movie theater, a Dalit, sitting in the back because he can't sit up front, put his foot on the seat, watching the movie, just enjoying himself. Amazing that a Dalit would even have the price for admission, his foot slipped off and struck the shoulder of a man in front of him who was of the religious class. That man waited for him outside, followed him home, found where he lived, came back the next day with a group of men from his religious order, and they hacked that young boy to pieces with a sword right there in front of his family. Everybody wants to be Hindu, wants to admire their religious system. That's their religious system hard at work right there. The caste society, you're cast into a certain level. You could have been born there. You'd have no opportunities to live as you do right now, right? Those from India that come here, trust me, they're not Dalits. They're of the educated class or the religious class who take their opportunities of freedom to come here and gain our society. It's an unfortunate thing that so many people overlook God's provision. They enjoy it, they use it, but they don't understand God orchestrated my circumstances. God orchestrated these water sources being readily available. Yes, build the aqueducts. Yes, bring the water into the city and praise God every time you strike the hammer to the chisel that he's giving you that resource. Right? They've they've forgotten it. And this is the condemnation of the Lord. And you you haven't even looked to me in this process. And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness, literally, that you would shave your head and shave your beard, and for the girding of sackcloth. The girding of sackcloth, purposely making yourself uncomfortable. Purposely. Even to the point of wearing extremely uncomfortable clothes. That every time it was uncomfortable, it would say to you, be in prayer. That's what prayer and fasting is about. Go without food for 24 hours. Every time the hunger pang hits you, every time you think, my goodness, do I have a headache, bow your head in prayer. Let the pain push you closer to God. Oh, man, Christianity is so self-absorbed. Just so hung up on entertaining itself. You know, my pastor and I came to the same conclusion about the term amusement years ago in discussion. The term muse means to think, right? We're to muse upon God's word at length under labor. That's called meditation. To muse and think upon God's word. A is to be in opposition of, right? Anti-Christ, right? A theist, right? Theist, theos being God. A theist is to be in opposition of the existence of God. A amusement, amusement to be opposed to thinking. 
That's what our culture is doing. Amusing itself. Doesn't even want to think about these things. Doesn't want to spend time in the Word. Wants to just play video games all day and forget reality. Reality. Reality is coming for every single one of us. We need to be on our face before God. Make your life uncomfortable in order to compel yourself toward God. All these people in Christianity trying to make Christianity cool, fun, awesome. How about make it hard? Make it difficult. That's the thing that teaches you according to the word. Weep, mourn, put on sackcloth. But instead, joy and gladness. Slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating meat, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's the phrase. Wrong answer. All together, wrong answer. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts. Surely, for this iniquity, there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, what have I, excuse me, what have you here, and whom have you here? that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Shebna was over the house. Shebna was a servant of the king Hezekiah, both a steward over the house and a scribe. You can see him recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 18, and also Isaiah 37, 2. Uh, these were both positions of honor and responsibility. Shebna was one of King Hezekiah's chief assistants, and he's evil. And God's going to have specific things in verse 17. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, almighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die. And there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office. And from your position, he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. A wonderful shifting of gears. You're incredibly wicked. And you are probably the leader of this mentality, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You've made yourself a big tomb in preparation for it, and God is going to throw you out on your ear. Like a ball. Like a child's plaything. He's going to fling you farther than you can possibly imagine. Verse 21, I will clothe him speaking of Eliakim, with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibilities into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pictures. Every um, measuring instrument that could hold anything valuable from small to great is going to be contained by Eliakim. Now, note takers, I know we're uh, already at 8 o'clock, but there are several things here uh, to take note of. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, is mentioned 
in passages in 1 Kings 18, 18, Isaiah 36, verse 3, as another assistant to King Hezekiah, it should be distinguished from Eliakim, the son of Josiah, uh, who was a puppet king that was established by Pharaoh. You can see that in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 34. Two very different uh, Eliakims being spoken of there. This great title that is given to Eliakim. Both Shebna and Eliakim were servants of Hezekiah, but Shebna's heart is you know, directed towards selfish ambition and glory is what he's all about. Eliakim's heart is for the Lord, and the Lord recognizes that and rips Shebna out of place and puts Eliakim into this position of authority. So the place of Eliakim, the, the son of Hilkiah, before Hezekiah, is somewhat obscure in the scripture. There are only six mentions of him, and if you want those, I'll give them to you later. But he's very noticed by God. He's kind of obscure in all of the scripture, but God pays particular attention to him right here, especially. Now, this title, he's God's servant. Eliakim is God's servant. He's given this great authority. This is where it gets interesting to me. Because the key of the house of David will be laid on his shoulder. And in that day, the chief royal steward would have a large master key to the palace fastened to the shoulder of his tunic. Uh, the key was a picture that demonstrated the authority that he had as the chief steward. In other, in other words, all things are available to me. Nothing is outside my authority. It was the greatest significance of a badge that you could possibly have. Only one individual carried. The king himself didn't have this. Everybody understood, there's the king. When you saw the king's steward and he had this key upon his shoulder, I mean, in, incredible honor. Now, prophetically, uh, this... Eliakim becomes a prophecy of the Messiah because Jesus told us uh, in his own words, <coughs> these things says he was holy, he was true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. That's Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 speaking of Jesus. So Eliakim is being directly aligned in his imagery with Jesus. That's quite remarkable. You don't see that much in the scripture at all, that someone in their existence and their symbology represents Jesus Christ. There are some who do sometimes, and then you have a few rare ones like, like Joseph, you know, who goes through all that he does. Uh, mentions in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, and Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, all Jesus making direct references to Eliakim in association with himself. That statement about opening and not shutting, again, authority that only Jesus has. He can open anything to whom he wants. He can close anything to whoever he wants. Here, the image given. This last statement about the peg, <laughs> it's the idea of something being fastened uh, and being made immovable. Now, the authority that was with Shebna was similar in that he was pegged in his position, but, but God is basically saying, I'm going to rip the foundation out from underneath you. The thing that made you secure in, in this culture they did not have shelves and cupboards and storage spaces. They had very large pegs that stood out from the wall a long way. And you would hang the items you used in the most prominent places. So, so your broom would be in a very prominent place on this peg. You know, the water picture and the things that you used 
every day would be right here hanging at ready access. That's the idea. A secured position of ready access. God is saying Shebna had that, but because he was selfish, I ripped him out of that place. And I'm going to take Eliakim and I'm going to build a peg for him that puts him in a place of prominence where I can readily use him all the time. It's incredible to me that a man seemingly in such a, an obscure sort of passage in the scripture is so prominent in the mind of God that Jesus Christ says repeatedly, that guy's just like me. That guy's just like me. That guy's just like me. You don't see that very often in all of the scripture. Take your time. Study Eliakim. See who he is, what he does. More than anything, if you're not going to do that, I can give you the summary. His heart was dedicated to the Lord. In a time where people were adrift and men like Shebna were self-absorbed and wickedness was permeating the, the uh, country of Israel, even as judgment was coming, here comes Eliakim, who's just singularly focused on God. Doesn't want to hear anybody else. Doesn't want to hear anything else. Just wants to do the will of God. That's a wonderful picture. That God would put the giant neon arrow right over his head and say, check that guy out. I like the way the Lord does that. To close it out, verse 25, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed, Shebna, gone, and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. You know, when you receive your secured position, you're pegged into your place, I'm going to rip the other guy right out. God has the ability to do that. You know, people have this mindset, like they are permanent, they are secure, they are immovable, like Babylon. God says, not at all. We can finish that off right now. We need to make sure our heart is not self-indulgent, not looking for the pleasures, not pursuing the worldly godless things. We need to be men and women who are like Eliakim. Our heart is steadfast toward the Lord. It's a great message. We'll pick up at chapter 23 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, for its clarity. Lord, help each one of us to be men and women who have our hearts, our lives, our focus set on you, that we could see you pegging us in our position, even if it was a humble state of existence, the simple things that you've tasked us with. Help us to be faithful to them. We submit ourselves to you and ask that you would accomplish your will in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.